many years ago, both just before we came into full-time ministry and, and actually for a little bit afterward, we were part of churches at that time that really majored on the idea of evangelism. And that's a good thing. The doctrine may not have been as strong as, as we wanted it or even knew that it should be back in those days, but there was a passion for evangelism. And yet that passion sometimes was kindled up out of feelings of guilt, out of feelings of law and duty. We would go through course after course after course. I can't tell you how many courses that we have been through to tell us different ways to evangelize. This process, um, this, you know, ask this question and then these questions. And, and after that, then you, you have won your battle and you have presented the gospel and you demand a response. And every one of those taught me new things about evangelism, but didn't teach me really the heart of evangelism. And so we were guilted if we weren't evangelizing, which made us, guess what we did? We didn't evangelize as much because we were fearful. We were fearful of failing. We were fearful of other things. But the passion was there kindled from the wrong source. So today I want to ask you, how passionate are you about evangelizing? How passionate are you about doing the things we just sang for 23 minutes about of heralding the name of Christ and preaching the gospel to the lost and, and heeding the call of God to go to the nations. How passionate are you about that? And no matter what your answer to that question is, when was the last time you actually evangelized anyone? When, when was the last time you actually sat down with someone and led them through the understanding that they were sinners in need of a savior and introduced them to Christ and how Christ deals with their sin and what their response should be in repentance and faith? It is the command from Jesus' lips that we do this and that we do this all the time, that it mark us it is the example in the New Testament of what the people in the New Testament did. Yes, there was evangelism in our churches. There was the after we're saved, the continuing making of disciples, right? That should be there. We might be growing in our obedience to that in good ways to disciple each other with the word of God, which is the command, go and make disciples. And the first thing we have to do before we can make disciples is to preach the gospel and have God save whom he will. And then that's step one. And then we just spend the rest of life discipling each other and growing in grace. Well, this morning, what I want to do, if you have any of that legalistic background, that guilt background, that failure background. Maybe it's a fear background. Maybe it's a background that you don't know many lost people, so how can you evangelize? This morning, I want us to see that we preach Christ because of God's glory. That, that what motivates us to tell other people is the beauty and grandeur of God himself. That, that when we are captivated with who God is, and I don't mean just intellectually stirred. We, we talk to each other all the time about not just being stirred up in our head, but connecting our hearts so that our lives prove that we've actually understood the doctrine that we prize. 
Because if we're not living according to that doctrine, if it doesn't change us, if it doesn't have an effect on us, then we don't fully know it. We just know about it. But the doctrine that we prize, that we find right from the pages of Scripture, present to us a God that is unbearable in his beauty, unfathomable in his greatness, presents to us a God that has done great and marvelous things that should bring us in humility before him, but also understand that he has sent his son so that we are reunited with him and have a relationship with him. That should drive us into both a passionate love that grows every minute for our Savior, but also a passionate drive to tell other people about it. What we know about God and what he has done, how he's revealed in the scriptures, should be our priority. And if it's our priority, then why in the world wouldn't we want to tell everyone about this God? That's what Isaiah brings to us this morning. Isaiah tells us that God's plan is to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He doesn't use those words, but he uses the concept. And he tells us that we should be driven to that for his glory, and that when he has redeemed us, then we glory in him. We praise him. And one of the ways we praise him, in the Old Testament it was clear, God redeemed his people, And he dwelt with these people and they were to live in such a way that all the nations came to Yahweh, right? We've seen that over and over in Isaiah. The same principles are here in the New Testament for us, except now he said, all the nations don't come to us. We go to all the nations with the same God, the same glory, the same passion. In fact, we see the fulfillment of Christ in the New Testament that the Old Testament saints looked forward to in hope. This should spur us to tell other people, not guilt about not obeying a command, but love for the Savior who is about the business of redeeming a people for himself. If we could look from Genesis to the maps in our Bible and put one little phrase over to what God is doing, that's what he's doing. He is working to redeem a people for himself. Now, there's much more about how he does that and the the place of Christ and what Christ has done and and the gospel and what it means. I'm not simplifying it down to meaning nothing, but I am saying if God is about the business of redeeming a people for himself and he's chosen us to be involved in it and commanded us to do that and equipped us with the power to do it and told him, and Jesus says, I'll never leave you and forsake you. And by the way, I have all the power and authority in the world granted to me. Why? On earth, wouldn't we go? Well, let's go. <laughs> let's get it. Why wouldn't it just be on the tip of our tongues all the time? Isaiah wants to move us in that direction. And that's the simple task this morning. Let's see God more clearly, fall in love with him in a greater way because we see his greatness and his beauty and then realize that he is about the business of redeeming a people for himself and he sent us out to be a part of that. What a glorious calling. Isaiah chapter 45. We began in 45 verse 1 last week with the first three of five thus saith the Lord passages. Taking us through the chapter 44 we started. Chapter 44 we began in verse 24 and all the way through the end of verse 45 
chapter 45, we see these thus saith the Lord statements, these oracles given by God. Now, I will say, the more I study this, I think this last oracle that we look at today actually carries forth into 46, 47, and 48 as well. I don't see a clear ending for this. We're going to end. Don't worry, we're not going to go through chapter 48 today. We're going to end... And if we did, you would hate me for it because we'd be done way too quick. So we're going to end at the end of chapter 45 today. But remember that we saw three of these thus saith the Lord oracles last week where Yahweh is speaking concerning Cyrus and Yahweh's right to raise him up. Cyrus is center, but the pinnacle is God and his right to raise him up. Cyrus is only God's vessel. He's mentioned, he has a role, but we should be seeing God in his power and his glory all the way through. And the first thing we saw was that Cyrus, Yahweh says, Cyrus is my shepherd who will fulfill my purpose. So we saw that from 4424 all the way to the end of the chapter, and he names him for the first time, and he, he roots all of this in his sovereign will as redeemer and creator to do this, that he is the one who is in charge, he has all wisdom, he has all power, and he is the one who will raise him up. And he says of Cyrus that he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, shall she be built, and the temple, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So we have that historical picture, 150 years before it actually happens, where God is raising up a pagan king to deliver his people, to let them go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And God says, I'm going to do this, and no one else could have done this. And he's going to remind us in today's section that he's the only one who could have done this. We also saw last week the second thus saith the Lord statement, Cyrus is my anointed whom I will empower, so don't fight with me. Then we saw that God makes all the statements about what he's going to do, and he's speaking to Cyrus, speaking directly to him, and then he addresses his people who some of them are kind of balking at this. They're expecting a Davidic king. That's what their expectation was. They're expecting a Davidic king. Why is he using a pagan king? Is this really going to happen? And remember, we're, we're thinking both of the people who were in Isaiah's day, but also the people in the Babylonian exile. So there were people who were complaining. So God addresses them and he says, don't fight with me. But he also said in the third statement, Cyrus is my choice, so don't question me. And the words are put from the mouth of God into his people that they are saying. And, and he's saying, this is what you're saying. You're questioning my right to do this. And he says, what right does the potter, or what right does the clay have to speak back to the potter? And he keeps them in their place, but constantly reminding them who he is and why this is ludicrous for them to do that. Well, coming in today, beginning in chapter 14, is where we will begin our reading. So if you're able, uh, 45, uh, beginning in chapter 14, if you're able, stand as I read our text today. Let me say one thing. Sometimes in... I don't sit you down a lot in our worship services before the sermon when we're singing, and I only do that for one reason. You sing much better when you stand up. Did you know that? When you sit down and you're kind of folded over like this, you don't quite sing as well. But if you need to sit, please sit. If You don't need my permission to sit if your body is saying, Pastor Rob, you don't know what my knees are doing right now. Just sit. Feel free to do that. Um, I've had a couple of conversations with people about this, so I thought I'd just have a conversation with you all together. Isaiah 45, verse 14. Thus says Yahweh, 
the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. And there is no other, no gods, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves together. or Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. You survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carried about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So this third oracle from Yahweh concerning Cyrus and Yahweh's right to raise him. Yahweh says, Cyrus is my deliverer, but I am the savior of the nations. We see that in this short oracle beginning in verse 14. Now, there's much going on in these two oracles. And I hope you saw that in verse 18, the fifth, thus saith the Lord statement, the fifth section that we're covering begins with four. It's the only one of the five that do it. So there is a tight connection between the fourth and the fifth oracle between verses 14 through 17 and 18 through 25. And what we see in verse 14 is our, is our phrase again, thus says Yahweh. And he says, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature. So he's dealing with three nations that we have heard of before. We've already seen this in chapter, just a few chapters ago. Chapter 43, God said he's giving these nations as a ransom for Israel. But we've also met some of them earlier in chapter 18. 
So we, we have already seen these nations used as an example of the nations. There are individual nations, but there are also examples of the nations, especially Cush and Egypt we have seen. And so these are not just a message to these. This is not just a message to those nations or about those nations. It is a message that those nations are the example of all the nations. How do we know that? Because throughout our text, we'll point it out, but I hope you saw already, there are markers about eternal salvation. Salvation. There are markers about all the ends of the earth being commanded to come to Yahweh for salvation. These are the markers that tell us we are moving into the spiritual fulfillment of everything that Cyrus represents. God is sending Cyrus. Cyrus is going to do his bidding. He's going to release his people. He's releasing his people, the remnant, back to build the, the temple and, and everything that he commanded them to do because Christ, the Messiah, still has to come from that group of people. So the remnant is being preserved. So God, being faithful to his covenant, re- brings forth the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, the rightful heir to the King of David. So we have other passages of scripture that use these nations in the same way. Like Psalm 68, 31. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Psalm 72, 10. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The Psalms are full of these kinds of pictures of the nations being bidden to come to Yahweh. Psalm 87, 4. Among those who know me, God says, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. They're so closely aligned with the God of Israel that people will say, they must have been born there. They must have been raised up in this faith. Isaiah 18, 7, we already learned concerning Cush. At that time, tribute will be brought to Yahweh of hosts to Mount Zion, the place of the name Yahweh of hosts. And that's referring to Cush and Nubia. That's referring to them coming. Finally, Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring me offerings. This has been God's intention from the beginning. We don't have to go back. We could go back all the way to the beginning and see in the garden with the, 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 what happens after the fall and how, what God does in the curse and the battle of the seeds that are brought for us. We can see that in the promise to Abraham that his seed will be granted this salvation and they will grow in numbers. And the book of Galatians tells us that that seed is a singular seed that is Jesus himself. So this is the teaching of Scripture. And it will end up with the praises in the new heavens and new earth of people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people giving praise. God is about this business. And he says that here in these few verses in verse 14. He names these nations and he says they come with their wealth. They come with their merchandise. The men of stature, it means they're men of measure. They're tall. Everything that they are, they're coming. But they're now coming in a different disposition than being enemies. How do we know? Look at, the, look at the fourth phrase there. They shall come over to you 
Notice how many times we see you and yours. They shall come over to you, be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other God, no God beside him. So because Cyrus has been in the picture... God is the, is the glory getter, but Cyrus is his servant. We might think that this is Cyrus, that these nations are coming as Cyrus comes and they will bow down to him. But all of these yous here are feminine singular words. So what we're talking about is Jerusalem. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to Yahweh himself. And Yahweh himself resides where? He resides with these people in the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament covenant. He has come down and condescended to live with them there. We remember in chapter 2 that all of the nations are going to come and they're going to come and they're going to seek out what Yahweh says about living righteously. And then the call is to disobedient Israel. Come, let us do this too. The nations are going to come to see this. And so they are coming over to Yahweh. They will come over. They will be his. They will follow him. They shall come over in chains and bow down to him at Jerusalem. Now, the people may be in mind here of Jerusalem, not just the city and the dwelling place of God. And this would have been a normal thing for people to recognize that if they're worshiping the God of the people, the God of the people must be the mediators for them. Now, we know that that is not the case, but that's the language that's being used here. And so when it says in this verse that they come over in chains and bow down before you, this is the language of submission, isn't it? And when, when I read several commentators on this, all of them tended to emphasize that this is voluntary submission. And I think, voluntary submissions? Then why four chains? Why are chains mentioned? And it just makes me realize this is the way we all come to God, isn't it? We come to Christ because we used to be servants of Satan and now we're servants of God. We used to be slaves of Satan and now we're slaves of God. We come willingly, but only willingly because God changes our wanter. In the act of regeneration, he changes us to want him. We are all enemies of God. No one seeks after him until God affects our heart in regeneration and then we willingly bow down before him because that's what generation provides for us so we give up being slaves to one to become slaves to another and you say pastor rob how do you know that keep your finger in isaiah 45 and turn to romans 6 romans 6 Paul is building this case, and at this part of his case, he talks about those who are in Christ being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in verse 11, after establishing why this is, what has happened, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to explicate that. And what I want to do is I want you to just start in verse 15 with me, because we have one task here, not to, not to exegete Romans chapter 6, but to show us why we are slaves to God and we're always slaves to someone. Look at verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. And he goes on to explain that. I am speaking in human terms because in your natural limitations... Because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members to slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we have always been slaves. But when God reaches out to redeem us, he enslaves us to him. And he does it for our benefit into his glory. And I think that's the picture that's being given back in Isaiah 45. They are coming with chains. And that change, those chains mean that they are being submissive to their new king. This one that they come to. This one that they follow. This one that they they plead with, um, with the people about him and make this confession. Look at verse 14 in the confession that they make. They will plead with you. Some of your versions might say pray with you uh, or intercede with you or for you. The verb mostly means pray in the, New, in the Old Testament. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. That is God's people in Jerusalem where he dwells. And there is no other, no God besides him. So we are being brought the uniqueness of God. No other God could do this. And we're going to find much more about that. But look at verse 15. Notice that we change here. The Lord is saying the quotes that this is what happens with what this is. This thus says the thus says the Lord. And in verse 14, the Lord is speaking. It seems in verse 15, we are moving from the Lord saying, this is what you guys are saying and doing to the people themselves who have been captivated by God. Truly, verse 15, you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. You are a God who hides himself. And how does this God described here? The God of Israel, the Savior. So what does it mean that God hid himself? We're going to learn in a few minutes that he didn't hide his speech. But what does it mean here that he hid himself? The Bible uses the term of God hiding his face from his people when they are involved in sin. His people at times feel like God is hiding his his face from them because they're not sensing his presence. And they say things like, why are you hiding your face from us? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from us? But the key here is to understand we're talking about the saving act of God to save the nations. Uh, And we'll show this in just a minute, but look at verse 16 and 17. All of them are put to shame and confounded. And I think this is better humiliated than confounded. All of them are put to shame and humiliated. The makers of idol go down to humiliation together. But Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded or or better humiliated to all eternity. Do you see the contrast? Two groups of people in the scriptures. The scriptures... Non-binary doesn't fit the scriptures. Can I just say that? There are those who are either for God or against God. You are either saved by God or you're an enemy of God. 
there's no middle ground of, well, I think I might decide later, or maybe I'm okay with God, that you're either with him or you are against him. And it's that way all the way through scripture. And that's what's being shown here. God is redeeming people from these nations. There's no, there's no claim that every single person in those nations are, are saved. There's no claim that all in Israel are saved. The claim is those that turn to him in obedience, those that come to obey and bow down and worship him. Those are the ones whose hearts are circumcised. Those are the ones who receive salvation. And the, and the contrast is here. All the people that God is bringing in from these nations to him are talking about the people who are left behind and saying they're idol worshipers. They are, in the words of verse uh, of verse 16, all of them are put to shame and humiliated. The makers of idols go down together in humiliation. Those are the ones who are not obedient, but those who are obedient are spoken of in verse 17 as Israel. That is God's people in the Old Testament. But we also know that not all Israel is true Israel. Amen? Are you tracking with me? Not all Israel is true Israel. So when Israel is talked about being saved eternally, it is the remnant. It is the circumcised heart Israel. And when we come to faith in Christ, even though we are not Israel, we are part of the true Israel, the seed that David was promised. We are part of David's seed. We are brought into the true Israel. God is redeeming a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we're seeing that here. Some obey, some do not, but God is the Savior. And he has hidden himself from those who will not obey him. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Rob, how do you know that? Can we just look at a couple of passages? Keep your finger in Isaiah 45. I'm going to take you to four passages, and you're going to turn with me. Turn to Mark chapter 4. This is not necessarily, well, not at all, a new idea that only those come to faith who God reveals himself to in a saving way. We say all the time that God is in charge of salvation. He is sovereign over it. And this is part of that sovereignty. So look at Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at, verses, at verse 10. We're in the middle of the parable of the sower and some confusion about what it means. And in verse 10, we read, And when he was alone... Those around him, now if you remember in the gospel of Mark, there are those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. Those who are close to him, those are far off. It's a marker he uses throughout the whole gospel. So those around him, those are his, his disciples, with the 12 asked him about the parables. They're confused. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom. To you, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. That they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? And then he explains the parable. He's opening their eyes to the truth. God reveals himself to whom he will. And Jesus uses Isaiah 6, the mission given to Isaiah that you are preaching so that this happens. Because God is about the business of separating those who are his enemies and those who, is, who he is redeeming. Flip over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 22. 
We're demonstrating that God reveals himself for salvation to whomever he pleases. Luke chapter 10, verse 22. Well, let's start in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to know what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Two more passages. You can make it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6. No, not 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, my fault. My writing is pretty bad in my Bible here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Did you see that? But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, capital S, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. One more passage, Ephesians chapter 3. What we want to do when we find truths in Scripture that are these, these truths that are just glorious, any truth in Scripture, but especially these glorious ones, we want to see where else the Scripture teaches the same idea so that we have Scripture interpreting Scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, and this is after, after part of what Buster read earlier for us, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. God reveals himself to who he will. And Paul tells us that this idea that we're learning about in Isaiah and other places throughout the scripture was fully expressed in the New Testament in ways that it was not in the old. God is sovereign over salvation. Back to chapter 45 of Isaiah. Cyrus is my deliverer, but I am the savior of the nations. This is God speaking and the nations affirming that God does what he will. And this is an eternal, everlasting salvation that will not put us to shame or humiliation. The fifth, thus saith the Lord oracle, Cyrus's mission was my plan, proclaimed in public, which no other God could do, so all the earth should turn to me and be saved. Now, in this passage, we come across ideas and concepts that we have already learned, brought to us in an order that establishes the uniqueness of God. And we know that because we see it over and over and over. I am God. There is no other. There is no other God besides me. None besides me. There is no other. There is no other God beside me. Over and over. So he's drawing all of these teachings that he's already given us in one way or another and bringing them to bear on the call to the ends of the earth to come to him for salvation. Look at verse 18. For thus says Yahweh, note the verbs, who created the heavens. And then this expression of joy. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. An expression of joy. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Now we have seen over and over, we saw a lot last week, the idea that God created the world and therefore he has a right to rule the world as he sees fit and we should bow down before him because he is the creator. And he is the creator, not these false gods. Why would you bow down to a false god who cannot save you and ask that god to save you when God, Yahweh, has spoken and said, I will save you. This is not new to us, but look how the he lines up these verbs to make us not miss any point. He created, he formed, he made it, he established it. And then some comment on the creating and forming. He did not create it empty. 
That's the same word, that, that tohu that we have seen before from Genesis 1, the formless and void aspect of, of, cre- of what God was creating from this, creating from nothing. He did not create it empty. He had a purpose. He formed it to be inhabited. Now, inhabited by all of his creation, but the pinnacle of creation is mankind. So his goal was to form it, to put his image in the midst of it, his image, the man created in his image and put them in the garden and righteousness would take over and spread through the world. And then they rejected their God. And so God is now redeeming a people from himself out of all the people who have rejected him because he is full of grace. But his purpose in creating was to inhabit it with people so they could image his righteousness through the creation. And he says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. This proves it. What other God does this? What other God created the world? Now, the, the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking about the gods is the gods just inhabited a chaotic world and the people would do every, they, everything they could to make the world livable so the God didn't get mad at them. That was, the, that was the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking about the gods. And God says, no, I created it with grandeur. I created it with beauty. I created it with order. When I created, I said it was good. And when I created man and, and, and when I created the humans, I said it was very good. And so this is my plan to inhabit the world because I do everything for a purpose. No other God does it. It proves there's no God like me. Look at verse 19. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. Now, we just learned he was a God who sometimes hides himself, but his words are not in secret. Now, specifically here, it's to his people, right? Read on. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So when God speaks, he hasn't hidden a word. He's not like all the necromancers calling up people out of the darkness, calling up spirits out of the darkness. He is a God who created and speaks and and tells people what he's doing. All the way through, who have we heard from in Isaiah? We've heard from Yahweh, haven't we? Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of what Yahweh says, what Yahweh has done. And we hear the same thing here. God says, listen, I didn't speak in secret in land of darkness. I, I wasn't hiding things. I didn't say you need to find me, but not, not speak to my people about where to find me. But he's also said to the nations, he's telling the same things to them. Throughout Isaiah, we've known that it's been the nations he's been talking about to come as well. Because he's not just redeeming a nation. He is redeeming a people for himself. He speaks truth. He declares what is right. Now, why is that? We take that for granted, but he speaks truth and declares what is right because he is a God. Truth resides in him. Truth is defined by him. What is right is defined by him and his character. So, of course, when he speaks, it's right. That's why we listen. We don't need to question. And you remember, in the back of our mind, should still be remembering some of his people in Babylon who are hearing these words and questioning why he's got a Gentile king instead of a Davidic king. Questioning him, talking to the, to the potter as the clay. And he says, I have not hidden myself. I've spoken truth. I've not hidden my words. I've spoken truth. I declare what is right. And so he uses the same things that we have already seen. And listen, when he starts with creation, he's telling us that creation has a revelatory aspect as well, right? Because God speaks, how did he create? He spoke the world into existence. 
So that creation account reminds us that he is revealing, maybe not salvifically, definitely not salvifically, but he's revealing himself in the creation. He's speaking through the creation. This is exactly what Paul teaches us in great detail in Romans chapter 1. It's the same thing in Romans chapter 1 that is in Isaiah 45. And you say, well, Pastor Rob, don't you tell me all the time you don't read the New Testament back into the Old Testament unless it's there? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, listen, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So if that is since the creation of the world, Isaiah is saying the same thing, isn't he? God has spoken. God has said, I have not hidden my words. He spoke the world into existence. He has spoken to his people. He's made a call to the nations over and over. He said, this makes me like no other God. So what does he do in verse 20? He says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nation. This is probably the people speak, picturing the time that Cyrus has already come and set people back into their homelands. They're already freed to go. He would have done this not just to Israel, but this was his way of governing. He would have done that to all the nations. Go back home. Be at peace where you are. I will rule you there. So he, again, calls the nations like he's done before as he's called the nations and their idols before him. And then he describes them. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save This is why I think chapter 46 picks up this idea and takes it further. So this oracle probably extends into 46, 7, and 8 because we will learn about the the certain gods whose beast carry them um, because they can't carry themselves. But in verse 20, he's just saying they carry about their wooden idols. They keep on praying to a God who cannot save them. That's, That's what it boils down to. God is a saving God. All the other idols are not. They are not capable. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. And we've heard that before. We're going to hear the same argument. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? That is, that Cyrus would come, deliver the people. Who declared that? Was it not I, Yahweh? So what does that make him? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Now, this idea of righteousness carries us through. In last week, we saw that the, 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 the call to praise of the earth, that the earth would open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. So the, it's, it's given the picture that God is working, and he uses the picture of salvation, uh, of, of, of creation, to reflect salvation. Just like you, you till the soil and plant everything, and it bears fruit, God is working, and it will bear fruit, and it is a righteous fruit. Remember that Cyrus was called in righteousness. So when God calls righteous, when God calls Cyrus, he's calling him in righteousness. His acting is according to his character and it, it, it is acting in righteousness. But it also is, he is a God who it says, who it says right here, a righteous God, this is his character 
And, it's, and that describes him as a savior, that there is no one beside me. So again, we have God presenting himself as a savior, not just of his people, but of all the ends of the earth, because that's what verse 20 says. Turn, or 22 says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Why? For I am God and there is no other. I've made my case that I am the Savior and your gods do not save you. you, you they do not save you. So now all the ends of the earth, everyone, not just the, not just the Israelites, but everyone, come to me and be saved. For there I am God and there is no other. I've already demonstrated my uniqueness. That's why you need to come to me. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. So in other words, what he intends will happen. He intends to save a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and he will. He is and he will save all he intends to save. It will not return. Later we'll see the same phrase, not return void. So he's sworn. And why is that important? Because he's swearing by his own character, which is righteous. He can swear by no one else. If God swore by someone else, that would be defeating to his own claim to be a unique God. He is the only one. His name and his character guarantee that what he says is true and it will happen. By myself I have sworn, verse 23, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, you'll recognize that phrase. We see it quoted pretty closely in Romans 14 where Paul's making the case for the people not to judge each other because everyone will stand in judgment on their own. And he quotes this. But he also quotes it in that famous passage in Philippians 2 that because of what Jesus did, that he humbled himself even to death on a cross and, and the, the humility that he had to obey his father, that he is exalted above every other name, and God has given him the name. This is where we started our worship service, so that every, it's above every other name. And every knee will bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this verse, we are learning that God says in verse 23, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And the New Testament tells us that it's at the name of Jesus that God causes that to happen. So we're looking forward auto automatically to see the fulfillment of the messianic promises in Christ Jesus. You say, well, how do I know that? Verse 24 and 25 brings us back to the same two groups of people, doesn't it? Look at that. Only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Only in Yahweh, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all those who were incensed against him. So the offer comes from the one who is righteous and strong. If you're an enemy of his, you don't have his righteousness. It's not available to you without submission to him. And yet... In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now here, the offspring of Israel is all the promises to Abraham. 
Everyone who believes in Christ, everyone who turns from their own sin, repents of that, and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are the ones that shall be justified, the legal term that says we're standing before God and we, our sins have been wiped away legally. They're, they're not our responsibility anymore. The wrath of God has been placed on another. The, the penalty of death... Another has suffered for us. We have been justified and shall glory. Literally, the, 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 the word is hallel. We shall praise. This is what we lead to. So when we see in Philippians that the promises is to the name of Jesus, the promised Messiah, who we're getting ready to hear three more sermon songs in Isaiah about that, that's who they're right, that's who Isaiah and God are speaking about. We know that it's through Jesus that anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any nation will get this kind of salvation, the only kind, the only kind that's eternal. It is always and only and ever in Christ, in Christ alone. And we see that clearly. It's, it's, it's completely clear to us that there is no salvation outside of God. There's no other name among men by which we must be saved except the man Christ Jesus. It's his name. It's his name that when we accept his name, now remember what name means, it's all of his character, right? It's everything about him. We are in full submission to him. We repent of our sin and trust in him. Now, many of you know that this verse verse 23, was the verse that many years ago, January 6th, 1850, a young man walked through a snowstorm, couldn't get to his place that he was going, and so he just turned in on a Sunday morning to a Methodist church in London. He turns in, snowstorm has kept everybody away, the pastor's not there, and this young man sits in, in, in that church, and there's no one to preach. So a layman gets up and preaches, and he preaches on this verse. And Charles Spurgeon was saved on that very day by a man who he says was not trained, a man who just kept repeating the words of the phrase, um, words of the phrase over, turn to me, and their version was look to me, look, look, he would say, you must look. And he, he didn't know what to say. In Spurgeon's own words, he says, the man said, look to me in broad Essex. So I guess he had already said in his account that he couldn't pronounce the words right. So I guess we're talking about dialect here from all the different um, accents. The man said, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some, on ye say, some of ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Over and over and over, every phrase in the preaching. Spurgeon writes, then the good man followed up his text in this way. Listen to this. The young, uneducated man who Spurgeon said didn't pronounce his words right, preaches the gospel from Isaiah 45, 23. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Isn't that a great presentation of the gospel? 
This is a man who is unlearned, had to fill in for his pastor at the last minute in a snowstorm, took look unto me from Isaiah 45, 23, preached the gospel, and Spurgeon is saved, who God would use in great ways. It's not about Spurgeon. God didn't need him. God chose him. He raised him up just like he did for Cyrus to make an impact on all of England and pass that because an unlearned man preached a strong gospel from Isaiah 43. So the people that want to take the Old Testament and say it doesn't matter to me are missing the point of the Old Testament because it's telling us that all things are fulfilled in Christ. Spurgeon writes this, when he had gone to about the length, about that length, and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, no, I'm not going to preach 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then, then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all of my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right at home. The, the man continued, And you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting his hands and shouting as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. This is what Isaiah is bringing us for. That salvation is being talked about in Isaiah. Come unto me all the ends of the earth. And you and I, have you seen? When I'm studying this passage this week, I was all by myself at one point, and I just started singing out loud, behold your God. I just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the beauty and grandeur and power of God. We've seen this all throughout Isaiah, but this sums it up in such a way that says, I am unique. I am alone in my beauty. I'm alone in my power. I'm alone in my grandeur. And I've said, all the world should come to me. And in the New Testament, we're told, go, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all things that I've commanded. And what's, our, what's, what's the beauty of that? He says, all power in heaven on earth has been given to me. And he says, I will ne- never leave you or forsake you. And when we look at the teaching in the, test, in the Old and New Testament that said God is the God of salvation, he's the one who reveals himself to whomever he will, and he's the one who draws people unto himself through the preached gospel, all we have to do is go tell people about this beautiful, powerful, all-sustaining God and his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent to die on a cross and raised again so that all of us who would repent of our sins and trust in him would be saved. Like the man who preached to to Spurgeon, look, 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 look at this God. And if you can say that God through his son has saved me, how many lost and dying people do you walk past every day that need the same message? It doesn't take a seminary degree. It takes a heart bowed in submission to the God who is beautiful, glorious, and strong. And we're not motivated by guilt. We're motivated by his character, by his beauty, because the world needs this. 
Will you go? Will you speak? Will you open your mouth to tell of the excellencies of our God? Father, we are grateful to your constant provision for us. Not only that you have redeemed us, but you have empowered us to live for you. That you you have empowered us in ways to live that we don't even experience because we're not living. We're existing. I pray that you would help us, Father, if we're lacking in joy, to be joyful because you are the God who has redeemed us and set us free from sin. If we're lacking in obedience in evangelism or any area, Lord, remind us of what you've done for us in Christ. Remind us that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness because you are the righteous. There is righteousness found in no one else. We pray, Father, that you would overcome us with your beauty so that as we contemplate your beauty along with your power, we are motivated to tell the world who needs to hear from you. For we can look at the world and, and say that you're miserable and you will always be miserable until you look to Christ. But how will they know if we don't go tell them? For you have raised us up as preachers. How will they hear if we don't go speak to them? For you have raised us up as heralds. So, Lord, we pray that today you would reinvigorate us, not with evangelism, but with you and your character so that we can't help but do anything except tell people about you. The world is waiting, and you are active, and you will accomplish your purpose, and we are grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.